Friends, we think about what God has called us to in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling us to live His way rather than our own way. Each of us, no doubt, could testify what happens in life when we choose to go our own way. We know that living our own way leads to discouragement, disappointment, and ultimately destruction. Choosing to live life our own way is how we live before Jesus saved us. We chose to live in rebellion against His ordered creation, living contrary to nature, the Bible says in Romans chapter 2. We lived in opposition to God's clear design, whether it be in our relationships with one another or in our relationship with the Lord. We lived a rebellious life. But when God saved us, He called us to a new way. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a self-improvement project. It is not making a better version of you, but rather it is making a new version of you. It is a transformative process, a metamorphosis, if you will, a change from one to something completely different. And God has promised through the power of the Spirit that He is making you, as we heard earlier, a new creation. That the old has gone, and behold, the new has come. But each one of us are tempted to slip into our old ways, to to go back to those old paths that are well-worn, that are well-trodden, that we know, that we're comfortable with. And this morning in our passage, we are confronted with God's new way. My hope this morning is that our lives will be conformed, not to the world around us, but rather transformed. That our lives as individuals and as a congregation, whether it be in our homes or in our workplaces, that the gospel would influence them. That we truly would become wives and moms that love Jesus and serve well. That we would be husbands that would model Christ's likeness in our love and sacrifice and to be parents that lead out in making disciples of our children and in the workplace we would commend Christ to those around us by the way we serve the way we love and care Paul here has been exhorting the church to put off their former ways and as he turns here in this passage before us this morning and addresses the the household it's interesting this morning that Paul doesn't write a separate letter an appendix to this letter. In none of Paul's letters when he addresses household does he say, hey, if you're a mom or dad or hey, if you're a husband or wife or if you're a slave or a slaveholder, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stay late after church, after the congregation dismisses and I've got a, I've got a special letter for you. He doesn't do that at all, does he? You see, it's tempting for you this morning to say, hey, look, I'm not married. I'm not a wife, I'm not a husband, I'm not a parent, I'm not an employee or an employer, therefore I can just check out. But Paul here writes this letter to the whole congregation. He calls out wives in front of the whole church, he calls out husbands in front of the whole church, he calls out parents in front of the whole church, he says, children, obey your parents in front of everybody. Why? 
because we're a family and we are to hold each other accountable to these commands. Whether or not you find yourself in these particular places in life does not mean you don't have a responsibility to hold one another accountable to these clear exhortations. Men, we have a responsibility to hold other men responsible and accountable to these passages. Women in our congregation, you have a responsibility to hold wives and moms responsible to this. All of us have a responsibility to hold each other accountable in the workplace. Or for business owners, holding each other accountable to the way we treat our employees. As a congregation, we have been called to live life together and to call each other to this new way. A truly distinct life that this world does not know. And friend, I want to remind you this morning that as our culture grows further and further away from Judeo-Christian values, we will stand out apart from our society more and more as we seek to obey God's Word in this particular way. This culture is not warming up to these particular exhortations, but are seeking to transform them and distort them in such a way that we don't even know how to define a family anymore. We can't even define what a woman or a mom is, let alone some of these things. My friend, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be considering this house co- these household codes here, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. It's a lot here. We don't have time to deal with all of it, but we'll do our best. Verse 18. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means this. Paul speaks for Jesus here, friend. So when you hear this, hear it in that Galilean accent that Jesus had. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will, be, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Here's Paul's main point. Christians have been transformed by the gospel, not only in their internal struggles against sin, but also in their outward relationship with others. Paul here is applying what we thought about last week about putting on these particular characteristics that we know are ours in Christ and applying it to everyday life. What does it mean to be compassionate and kind? Well, here you go. And this is what he does in these verses ahead of us. So the purpose of our time this morning is to really see that the gospel sheds light in on the home. 
The gospel shines light into the workplace. How we relate to one another in the public square. How we care for one another in the home. And here Paul addresses six distinct groups within the congregation, calling each of them to submit to God's purposes for their life. And so very quickly, we're going to see five, uh, six words to various groups. Number one, we see a word to wives there in verse 18. Then in verse 19, we see a word to husbands. And then in verse 20, we see a word to children. Then in verse 21, a word to fathers or, and to parents. In verses 22 through 24, or 25 rather, we see a word to employees, those who are working for another. And then finally, a word to employers, or perhaps managers, those in charge of others. Number one, a word to wives there in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Perhaps no other verse in your Bible is countercultural than this particular verse. No other verse perhaps runs counter to our current cultural climate with the word submit. No one wants to submit. No one wants to submit to another human being. We're told in our culture that submission is a word that is to be avoided. It's a word that is degrading. It's a word that, that somehow distorts reality it is a negative and never seen as, as a positive. Paul here writing to these women here in this culture would have been accustomed to hearing the word obey your husbands. But here Paul completely reorders Greco-Roman society in this passage by writing to these wives and saying to them, submit to your husbands. Someone might ask, well, what does it mean to, to submit? Well, it means exactly what you think it means. It is a free and voluntary submission to the leadership of their husbands. In the context here in verse, 19, or verse 18, it is, is as is fitting in the Lord. So again, a wife is not called to submit to her husband in sin or in rebellion against God, but the context is of a godly home where a husband is leading in godliness and Christ-likeness and love for his wife. In this way, a wife submits. Now, as you heard earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul grounds the particular exhortation not in culture, not in the first century, but in creation. In appealing to the created order Paul makes clear that this is God's ordered design for creation. That husbands and wives are equal. Men and women are equal. In no way a wife submitting to her husband is to imply that the wife is a subservient slave. But rather willingly submits to the leadership of God's designed order for the family. In no way is this meaning to demean women, uh, to say that wives have this lower place in the home. Not at all. But rather to elevate them as one who models Christ-likeness through their willful submission to their husband's leadership. Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Peter says it this way, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. While they are not to submit in ways that lead to sin, they are to be exhaustive in their submission to their husband, Paul says. This is why he says, as is fitting in the Lord. As it fits to lordship. In other words, a wife submitting to her husband ultimately is a wife, Paul says, submitting to Christ. Wives this morning, I want you to hear this. When you follow your husband's godly leadership, you ought to understand ultimately you are submitting to God's plan for your life. Don't listen to what the culture will say to you that somehow you are are hurting yourself or somehow distorting yourself or somehow diminishing yourself. No, 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 no. You see, when you live contrary to God's ways, this is what results. The biblical principle we find here and elsewhere in the New Testament and throughout the Bible is that wives are to follow the spiritual and practical leadership of their husbands. They are to submit to this leadership by living with their husbands in a way that reflects this submission, that doesn't seek to undermine their leadership. This does not mean that wives are to be treated as slaves or to feel that they are subhuman or even subservient. They are co-heirs of the grace of Christ, the grace of life. Husbands in no way should make their wife feel like they are less than. We're going to deal with husbands in just a minute, all right? So wives, you just hold out here for a minute. We're going to get them straight in just a minute. But we ought to see, first and foremost, that when a wife submits willingly and gloriously to her husband, it reflects the church's submission to Christ, as Paul argues in Ephesians 5. We must understand this in no way, and to be emphatically clear, because this is where Christians have gotten it wrong in the past, this in no way is Paul saying in submission here means that if your husband is abusive, you just kind of stick it out. That is not what Paul is arguing here. The context here, as is fitting in the Lord. So with that aside, we need to understand this willing submission to leadership looks like allowing your husband to lead. Allowing him to be the spiritual leader in the home. Allowing him to give godly oversight to your children and to you. When is the last time you asked your husband, where are we going as a family spiritually? And friend, this is a fitting way in which we see wives submitting to their husbands. But secondly, we see a word to husbands, don't we? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul quickly leads behind the wife of the home and addresses the husband. He says, husbands, here's the deal. You ought to love your wife. Now the word that Paul uses here is not erotic love or romantic love. It's sacrificial love. Now lest we think we're just to be very romantic kind of men and we ought to, you know, romance our wife. That is not what Paul is talking about here. Though, of course, that might be included in the idea. The main idea of this particular text is that we are to sacrificially love our wife. 
That's what love means in the Bible. Love means to sacrifice, to give oneself. How did God love us? But yet sacrificially. More than that, the love in the Bible is unconditional. Love in in the Scriptures is an unconditional love. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Husbands, your love for your wife should not be conditional upon anything that she does for you. For Christ's love for you was not conditional, but was unconditional. Thirdly, our love for wife ought to be purposeful. Elsewhere, Paul exhorts Christians to love their wives as Christ loved the church and sanctified her, making her holy. One author put it this way, A husband is to be concerned not primarily for his his wife's short-term happiness, perhaps hoping for an easier life himself, but for her long-term holiness, cleansing, and radiance in Christ. Husbands, I wonder, do you care more about your favorite sports team or whether or not your wife's soul is being sanctified? Are you more committed to celebrating what you like most out of life or whether or not your wife is looking more and more like Jesus? Do you care whether or not your wife is aging well or spiritually maturing to look like Jesus? Husbands, what it means to love your wife means that you care for her soul. You pray with her. You read the Bible with her. You encourage her to follow Jesus. We also see in this text that to love your wife means negatively, look there at verse 19, not to be harsh with them. Not to be harsh with them. We ought to be affectionate with them. Husbands, you don't get to be a jerk. Sorry. Culture may celebrate that. TV programs may be built around that. Society may be built around husbands being dumb and jerks, but here's the deal. As a Christian husband, you are not to be harsh with your wife. This means that you ought to be affectionate with her. You ought to love her. You ought to understand her. You ought to get to know her better and better so that you can love her more and more. Peter said it this way. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, I know some of y'all got like wrecked when, I heard the, when you heard weaker vessel, all right? Just chill out, all right? Just calm down a little bit, all right? It's not what Paul, it's not what Peter means, what you think he means, all right? Here's how one New Testament commentator put it a husband's legal authority over his wife was such that she had little hope of redress of law for harassment or unfeeling conduct on his part but such a situation should not arise in a christian household the forbearance and forgiveness which are enjoyed in the preceding sections of this letter that we've read that we've been studying together with compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience forbid a christian man to be harsh with his wife or treat her in any other way you don't get to friend you can't at the same time say that you are compassionate kind humble meek and patient and then treat your wife like a piece of trash 
You you cannot claim the name of Christ and not devote yourself to sacrificially loving and leading. Stop being a bum and get on your knees in prayer and lead your family in the Word. Be an example of Christ. Then all these other things will follow. Brothers, I wonder this morning, how are you loving your wife? Are you sacrificing for her? Are you dying daily to yourself so that you can sacrificially love her? We must avoid the temptation of resentment, of bitterness, and discouragement in the Christian home by leading well and sacrificing greatly. In this way, as husbands love their wife as Christ loved the church, then we model Christ's likeness to a watching world. Husbands, remember the way you love your wife tells your children more about Jesus than you realize. And perhaps your children are struggling to follow Jesus because you struggle to love your wife as Christ loved the church. A third word here in verse 20, a word to children. Children can't wiggle away from Paul in this particular thing. He he quickly turns his attention to children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the the Lord. Children are like, in everything? Did he really say everything? He said everything. God's design for the home is that children are not equal with parents. I know it's a fad this day for you to be your children's best friend, but here's the deal. You can live that way and it will lead to disaster. Or you can live God's way and have a hierarchy in the home where parents are the ones who are in charge. I think it's so funny, my years dealing with parents in student ministry, one of the biggest complaints was their children's phones. And I would look at them and I would say, hey, uh, who bought that phone? Well, I did. Well, who pays the bill? I do. Well, you have the right over that phone, silly what are you doing? It's your phone. You bought it. You paid for it. You can look at it anytime. You see, we, so often we get disordered as, as a family. We get disordered as Christians. Children, you are to obey your parents. Notice what he says. Obey your parents and everything. For this pleases the Lord. Have you ever thought about how pleasing it is to God when you live God's way? It gives him glory when we submit to parents. Now, if you're a child here this morning still living in your your parents' home, and you claim the name of Christ, but yet you willfully rebel against them, friend, I don't know what you mean when you say you're a Christian. And I mean that with all love that I can say to you. Parents, do not enable your children to live in rebellion against your authority and think they're okay with Jesus. You are not helping them at all. Help them. Be kind to them as we'll see in a moment. But understand you have a responsibility to lead and you deserve honor, respect, and children you ought to obey your parents. A fourth word, here we see in verse 21, as I said, we have to move through these very quickly. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children 
lest they become discouraged. The word there to, to provoke means to be excessively severe, unreasonably harsh with demands, abusive in your authority, arbitrary in your commands and rules. The idea here is of a father unlovingly leading his children, more driving his children rather than leading his children. Now, while Paul here calls out fathers, of course, parents, moms have a responsibility here. But it's interesting that Paul calls out fathers. Why? Because dads, you have a responsibility to lead in this way. One of the most annoying things I hear is when a Christian father tells me that he has to babysit his kids. And I'm like, dude, you ain't babysitting no kids. Those are your kids. You're responsible for them. You don't get paid to babysit your own kids, all right? Like, you understand, like, those are your kids. Like, that's not babysitting. That's called parenting. That's called being a dad, all right? You wanted to make them, you got to take care of them, all right? Fathers, you have a responsibility to lead in this particular way. And sometimes we provoke our children by our lack of leadership just as much by our harsh leadership. Absentee fathers provoke children just as much as fathers that are jerks. Don't be an absentee dad. Be involved in the leadership and the counseling and discipling of your children. Friend, the Bible paints a picture that parents, particularly fathers, have a responsibility for the formation of their child's soul. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, that we ought to train up a child in the Lord. Of course, we know that passage in Proverbs, that we ought to train up a child in the way they shall go, and they shall not leave the Lord. Fathers, you have a responsibility to be the primary disciple maker in your home, not only of your wife's heart, but also the heart of your children. I don't know how you have time to do that when all you do is feed on your own selfish desires. This is why as fathers we must regularly die to ourselves that we can take up the mantle as disciple makers in our home, reading the Bible with our children, praying with our children, helping them think through spiritual things. We ought to understand that it is not the church's primary responsibility to make your child a follower of Christ. It's your responsibility. And Father, if you're a Christian this morning, one day you will stand before King Jesus and you will give an account for the way you led your home. You and Jesus are going to have a conversation, just like me and Jesus are, are going to have a conversation one day. And he's going to know, want to know why you cared so much for the things of this world rather than for the souls of the children in your home. Therefore, as parents and as fathers particularly, we must be intentional in our relationships with our children and having gospel conversations with them. Helping him know about God. Do you recognize, Dad, that your child's view of God's authority is going to be gained more from you than from anyone else in this world? And you distort that authority by your harshness 
and your unkindness and your arbitrariness, and you provoke them, you'll wonder why they struggle to trust in God. Fathers are to display through their care and discipline of their children kindness and gentleness that displays the the Father's love for us as His children. We are to reflect God the Father in this way. Fathers, you have an immense privilege. Own it. Embrace it for the glory of God in Christ. The fifth word, a word to employees. Now, interestingly enough, Paul takes up quite a bit of space addressing bond servants here in verses 22 through 25. Why? Well, perhaps it's because there was a problem in the church. Perhaps he had gotten word from Epaphras that there was an uprising. No doubt, Onesimus is one of the couriers of this letter. Uh, And so, fascinatingly, he was a slave that is now free. And he's a courier here. And so, perhaps in the Lucian Valley, where this church was found, there was a particular issue with bondservants rebelling against those in their care. Perhaps there was an issue even with masters being um, harsh and difficult with them. Before we jump into this section and just look at this, um, I want to remind you of a a couple little facts. Number one, uh, you'll notice that your Bible, and particularly the ESV translation, has chosen the word bondservant. Bondservant. Some translations might use the word slave. The ESV translators have moved away from that word slave, though it adequately captures the idea they were slaves. There's no way do they mean to diminish what was really going on here. But the reason why they've moved away from that word slave is because of chattel slavery in America. No doubt the English word slave and slavery has been influenced by our historic context. When one thinks of slavery, we immediately, our minds are carried to the the horror of the sin of chattel slavery that occurred in the United States and throughout the world. This ownership of one human being coerced into slavery. But, But in the New Testament, nowhere is there an assumed idea that trafficking in human beings is a moral good. Chattel slavery here in America was a human trafficking. It was, a, it was literally evil. And so Paul here is in no way commending what we know today as slavery, but rather is referring to it in a completely different system in which one might go into bond slavery in order to pay back. Slaves in this particular time could have won their freedom by their time of service, and many times adopted were adopted into their families. Regardless of how one understands this word, Paul here is writing to workers in the workplace, those who have people in authority over them. And so for our minds this morning, for the sake of, of understanding the application to our life, is, hey, how do you work in the workplace? So if that's you this morning and you're working in, a, in, in the workplace this morning, I, I wonder how is it that you serve those in your charge? And so, number one, we see that we ought to work respectfully. Bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Your earthly masters. In other words, as workers, we ought to work respectfully. Secondly, we ought to work sincerely. Those who, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, 
We ought to work sincerely. Perhaps you just work for the eye. You, you work hard when the boss is looking over your shoulder. We ought to also work humbly as Christians. One of the ways that we commend the gospel is by our hard work. Notice what he says there in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Friend, as Christians, we ought to understand that our labor, whether we're laboring in the home as a homemaker, whether we're laboring in the workplace, we are working for King Jesus. To say that Jesus is the sovereign king is to say that ultimately Jesus is the highest boss. He is the Lord of Lords. Do you work hard in your job or do you merely just do what it takes to get the job done? Are you a hard worker? As Christians, we ought to be hard workers. Number five, we see here in verse 24, we ought to work purposefully. We ought to work with purpose, knowing that from the Lord we will receive an inheritance. Do you understand that your earthly labor matters for eternity? You know, sometimes we have this dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. We, we think that, okay, I work for a secular employer, and it is somehow less than sacred work. Like as if pastors and those involved in ministry are somehow uh, better off in God's eyes. Not at all, friend. We ought to see that there is no distinction Well, whether or not you're working in a menial job, whether you're working in the trench somewhere, or whether you are a CEO of a corporation, all of that labor is to be done for the glory of God in Christ. Now, you might might have a boss who's terrible, who's manipulative, who's who's truly a wretched person. You, You might work for a really bad person. Friend, let me remind you, as Paul does here, that ultimately you work for Jesus. Let that just attitude transform the way you go about your work. You see, this is the foundation that all of these other characteristics flow from. When we understand that we work for King Jesus, well, man, we are going to work all the harder. We ought to see also that work is a means of worship. God has given you particular skills. Whether you're a teacher or whether you're an electrician, whether you are a banker or whether you are a CEO, God has given you skills and by using your abilities, you are worshiping God. We ought to see work as a means to worship God. Well, finally here we see in this passage a word to employers Paul here ends verse verse 25 with a warning that those who are harsh with employees will one day be paid back. In verse 1 he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. If you have employees in your care this morning, friend, and you claim the name of Christ, I pray that you deal with them justly and fairly. Because you will be held accountable. You know, as Christians, every avenue and every aspect of life intersects with this reality that we will be held accountable. One day, all things will be brought to the light. And the way we treat those under us, one day we will have to deal with Jesus. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 24, he refers to Christ as the Lord Christ. 
And then he uses this language of master in verse 1 and master in heaven. He's making clear to those who are slaveholders in this congregation that ultimately they are not the final authority, but that they will one day be held accountable to the one true master. Not only was this encouraging to the slaves, but would have been encouraging to the masters and holding them accountable to the reality that they had to answer to Jesus. Jesus was would one day remind them. And so therefore, every decision they made, every way that they led their people, ought to have been a reflection of this idea. In other words, they were to lead with eternity on their minds. They were to lead in such a way as they were reminded that eternity was coming and they would have to answer for the way they cared for those in their charge. Friend, wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you're a wife working in your home and seeking to lovingly and graciously submit to the leadership of your husband, whether or not you're a husband seeking to model Christ-likeness or a child seeking to obey their parents as best as they can, whether you're a father seeking to lead out in godliness and Christ-likeness in your children's life or an employee working hard in the workplace or in a manager, an employer, serving Christ, we ought to see and understand that the gospel infects and affects every life. Richard Koken says it this way, in this wonderful practical passage, masters, slaves, fathers, children, husbands, and wives are all encouraged to live and work together as servants of Christ, to demonstrate heavenly realms with the triumphal wisdom of God and this eternal mission of gathering under the rule of Christ. For the triumphant victory of the cross over evil powers is not only demonstrated in the church on Sundays, it is powerfully displayed when Christians from every background submit to the rule of Christ in their homes or workplaces from Saturday to Sunday. Friend, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has transformed us. And we ought to throw off our old ways and embrace these new ways in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the grace you've given us in Christ. And as we have this opportunity now to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves that we are following Christ, help us, we pray, to expose sin in us, a need to confess our sin this morning, to grow in the knowledge of Christ. It is for your glory we pray, in Christ's name, amen.